to everybody who is listening on Spotify, Anchor.fm, Apple, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Farm, a baseball podcast dedicated to covering the major and minor leagues. I'm Matt Kovitz, your host. And as always, joining me, Sam Shapiro. Sam, how are you? I'm a little chilly, Matt. We've got some, uh, some nice snow coming down here in Connecticut, but otherwise, I can't complain. Oh, you've got snow. It's just been really, really cold and rainy here. Just an onslaught of storms the last 24 hours. I guess this is, uh, uh, this is what happens when baseball season's over. We had very decent weather throughout the playoffs, a World Series free of any type of storm-related interruptions, and now the heavens are just opening up. And what a World Series it was. Without giving too much away before we get to the recap, the Los Angeles Dodgers won their first championship since 1988, and it all went swimmingly, and nothing was wrong. Oh my God, Justin Turner tested positive in the middle of the game. Oh my God. You know, honestly, looking at the, um, looking at like the photos and videos of what happened afterwards, you have, uh, you have a guy, Justin Turner, they, they take him out of the game. They tell him that they, uh, he tests pos- tests positive in the eighth inning. He goes out, he celebrates with his team without a mask. MLB security tries to get him off the field. He refuses. He said no. And then Dodgers club officials said, yeah, he can come on. It's fine. And honestly, I think that this is, this is the proof positive pun very much intended that we needed to, to learn that most of the MLB thinks that COVID is just a liberal hoax. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing if it's, you know, if it's the positive test, if it's, you know, him not wanting to wear a mask in general, we've seen a good mix of guys in dugouts, uh, some wearing masks, some not, but you know, this is, this is the hallmark of someone who just thinks that COVID doesn't exist and that, you know, nothing, nothing's happening. Uh, and based on his teammates reaction, um, based on my own stereotypes about uh, who makes up uh, other teams' rosters, I think this is a, this is a pretty common uh, common belief, unfortunately. Well, this was a team when the Marlins broke out. The Dodgers were very intent on following the rules and sticking to protocol. So maybe something did happen where someone else, as they expanded the bubble, quote-unquote, that's a soft bubble, maybe someone around him tested positive, and that's what we encountered, a family member, a member of the traveling party. That being said... MLB was very focused on making sure that everybody was safe until October came around and 10,000 fans were in that World Series bubble at Globe Life Field. Game five, game three, rather, was a bit rainy and they had the fans indoors, not many practicing social distancing. Was this a real safety measure or was it political theater for the entity of Major League Baseball? 100% political theater. You can, you can, you cannot say anything to convince me otherwise, which I understand the argument's going to be made. Oh, they're athletes. They're most likely going to be fine. And that's correct. They're more than likely going to be okay. But Tell what about Eduardo Rodriguez? Exactly. What about a guy like Eduardo Rodriguez who was having a hard time walking for a couple months after his positive diagnosis? What about Ryquel Armstead of the Jacksonville Jaguars who was testing positive two months after his initial case? and still can't play is likely out for the rest of the NFL season. They are playing it fast and loose. And while the majority will be okay, you just have to look at Freddie Freeman, another guy at 104 and a half degree fever. I wish they'd be a bit more careful. You know, I, w- I would too, but uh, I think that there's probably, there's probably a large political block in these guys' heads that's, that's preventing them. Um, I think that's when we, uh, we rewind a little bit with this, uh, the Cleveland Indians incident with Zach Plesak and Mike Clevenger. Plesak's response after that whole, you know, Mishigas went down, he blamed the media. That was, that, was his, that was his gut reaction. That was the only aspect of the situation he felt upset about. No remorse for potentially exposing his cancer-surviving teammate, Carlos Carrasco, his manager, Terry Francona, who had lots of health problems. No, the real, the real villain in that situation was just the media. And that's how these guys are wired. That's how they view the world. And I think that's uh, as long as uh, the league is trying to you know, play games with the scepter of COVID hanging over them. Uh, that's just going to be uh, an unfortunate part of the reality. And I'm not sure what 2021 looks like in terms of a baseball season. I would imagine that at least for the early part, according to most epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists, this is going to be around in March and April when they start again. So there's, we're, they're going to have these concerns all over again, but amplified if they try to get a 162 game season in. But that's a long way to go. I'm hoping we'll be in a better spot then than now. And it seems like we I, have a, I have a, I have a huge hot take. Sure. You know how we had people um, opting out of this past season because of COVID related concerns. Correct. I predict there's going to be at least one player, at least one who opts out because of having to follow a safety protocol. 
as interesting. I, I know, I know, I know, I know that, you know, it's, it, it's counterintuitive in terms of, you know, these guys just wanting to play and this being their livelihood. I think I, I, I and I'm not saying it's going to be like a, a big name guy or someone who will hugely impact a team, but I think you'll have someone who will say, you know, I can't do this, uh, being cooped up in the hotel this whole time. I can't have, you know, my freedom impinged, you know, especially with like the overall mood we're seeing in this country where people are just deciding that, you know, all of these restrictions and social distancing are just too onerous for them. Uh, I, th- I think there's going to be an, an incidence of that, you know, in, in, in the MLB with at least one player. I could see that happening. I would hope not because although it's a big undertaking, wouldn't you rather be safe than not safe and just adhere to this because this is a billion dollar enterprise that you're helping to try and run. And at this point you'd be getting paid in full. Alas, we will see what happens. I would not be shocked if that comes true as well. But let's move on to who's going to be in charge of the Chicago White Sox. And Sam, I have to give you kudos. You really called this one. You mentioned it on the show last week that a guy to be considering for your thought provocation, Tony La Russa. And just like that, he is now a member of the Pale Hose team. Now that did not come without some controversy. La Russa is 76 years old. He is not exactly the most adaptive personality in the game. And he has made statements against kneeling. He has made statements against bat flips. I don't know if this is a media conspiracy, but a lot of talk about Tim Anderson not being happy with the hire has just floated across my timeline. I have no idea if that's true will be something to monitor. And this, according to Jeff Passan, is a Jerry Reinsdorf move and a Jerry Reinsdorf move only where he just wanted to be in charge of the hiring process, leading Rick Hahn out of it. Whatever the case, these new baby White Sox will be taken care of by the elder statesman in Tony La Russa. Yeah, regarding Tim Anderson, uh, I already got very political with our last segment. Uh, I don't know how much I want to keep going with that, but all I'll say is it definitely makes sense and I can understand why. Uh, it goes back to what I mentioned last week as being such a huge key in how this all plays out, which is what the coaching staff looks like. And I think that if uh, if Tony's intentional with how he makes his hires, uh, like I said, getting a, a young bench coach who can relate to the players, making sure that other positions on the staff are stacked with people who can kind of bridge that gap in ways that he will not be able to. I think that that would have a much better chance of working out because you know, for all of his crustiness and incompatibilities per se with the modern game, he's still a Hall of Famer. He's won three World Series titles. That doesn't mean nothing. I am perturbed to hear that the general manager was completely shut out of this. I think that's not a good sign. Uh, you want to have some kind of synchronicity uh, up and down your front office, making sure that everyone is on the same page with the hire you're making. You know, I, I can't think of examples off the top of my head, but I would imagine that when you have uh, an owner who is not a baseball ops expert, just kind of grabbing the reins and doing uh, and doing his own thing, that doesn't seem like it's going to end well, but we will see how this plays out. Another underrated party that has been a bit angry at this, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, because as of course, La Russa is already a Hall of Famer. What if he taints his legacy? Is he still going to be in? That's a very old man concern that I should not be paying attention to, but it exists. What do you mean? Like, is he, is he still in? People were considering, especially on sports radio, say he does a horrible job. Would they take that away from him? Would they take his plaque away from him? It's a ridiculous claim. I don't know. You can't, you can't take a plaque away. What, what, what is it? That's just, that's just sports talk radio noise, man. Blame WFAN for this thought. I know. Cause I mean, honestly, here's, here's the thing because you have plenty of players who get inducted as players and they go back uh, into the game as coaches or managers. And they very well could have you know, atrocious turns of their legacy. And, you know, or, or, or even some, some sort of ethical issue that arises when they're a manager after a Hall of Fame playing career. And they're not getting, you know, their plaque removed. And, you know, for all of the issues we pointed out with La Russa, he still, or he still earned it. He was a very good manager in his day. And I think that's uh, even if he has like a couple of years of absolutely flaming out with the White Sox, that's, that's just a small part of his, uh, of his career. If there are any 82-year-olds listening to this and want to chime in, feel free to call. I'm sure you have an opinion on it. Moving forward with the Detroit Tigers, a guy that we talked about a few weeks ago, looking like he's going to be in charge. After the team interviewed Dave Clark, Sal Fasano, Don Kelly, Mark Kotze, just to name a few, the new manager is expected to be A.J. Hinch of the Houston Astros. Now, I have some reservations about that because, of course, he tried to proclaim his innocence and steer clear of everything in his interview with Tom Verducci of the MLB Network. This was way back in February. But this is a guy who was still complicit in the sign-stealing scheme. 
no matter how much they must have liked him, there's a lack of accountability and leadership in that clubhouse. Because even if he was not involved, he turned a blind eye to it. There is not a chance that he didn't know about what was going on. Like if he didn't look 10 feet to his left and take a look at the giant video monitor and the trash can that was right next to it. I'm sure he is well-respected amongst players, if not for his silence. But he looks like he's going to be in charge of the Tigers and try to work their way out of a rebuild. He does have experience with that, cheating or not. But he did help bring the Astros to the playoffs in 2015. And of course, bring them to new heights, legal or not. Right. I think uh, with a guy like Hinch, uh, obviously that's a dark uh, stain on his legacy. But um, looking at his his past, this was... Uh, the Astros job was not his first managerial job. So he had that experience coming in uh, Stanford grad, longtime catcher. So I, th- I think that he brings stuff to the table as a manager, which explains why he's, why he's getting these looks. He was also rumored to be another choice uh, in the Chicago search before they went in a different direction. I also think, um, and th- this is me more leaning into a devil's advocate role here. Obviously that was, you know, that was a serious scandal that everyone involved should have, should have been punished. Uh, you know, I'd say people in the front office in addition to uh, Hinch and, and, and Cora and whatnot. But I think that the anatomy of that scandal was that it was really all up and down in the clubhouse, in the front office. So many parts of that Astros organization were involved and were complicit. And so I think that AJ Hinch had his role. But his role was one among many. And so I think that when we're talking about, you know, what he needs to do to atone or, you know, how much responsibility he bears, I don't think the blame falls entirely on his shoulders. I think it's something that he shares a part of with, uh, with plenty of other people. And so with that, regardless of whether we think the punishment was uh, not severe enough, uh, now that the World Series is over, he's done his time. And uh, I'm very intrigued to see what he can do in a situation that requires a little bit more of the rebuild than what he had his last couple of years in Houston and one where he's kind of doing this on his own without any sort of inappropriate forms of assistance. And now we'll stick with Houston because Jeff Lunau, as we briefly mentioned last week on our episode, Jeff Lunau was on Houston television talking about how he didn't know about this scheme, even though reports from Ken Rosenthal that came out a couple days later said he was definitely aware considering members of the front office that were in charge of Operation Codebreaker are still there. There's no way that slipped by him. Now, of course, 2020 had a lot of safety protocols and a lot of restrictions, especially in the video room. Players are not allowed to go there during the game. They would have to take a look at their highlights pre or post. More than likely had no cheating in the same way due to that lack of access. In a normal season where players are more free to look at in-game highlights, let's just say next year. Where do we draw the line with what is allowed and what isn't? Because I think every player should have the right to take a look at their swing, say they pop up or ground out and they want to fix something and they're taking a look at the mechanics of their at-bat. I think they should be allowed to do that. But at the same time, people were taking advantage of that system. So as a fan, what would you personally be okay with in terms of what they're allowed to focus on when the game is going on? I mean, I think that the line that's drawn is uh, the line that's uh, the line that was uh, the line that was broken by the Astros. I think if you're using that to kind of provide aid to other people on your team in terms of you know uncovering tells and whatnot, you know, if you're if you're a guy up at the plate and you hear the trash can banging, you know, you that's not the product of you going back and going and going to look at something. That's you know like a team wide effort to kind of you know get get under the other un, into the other team's head and under their skin. I feel like, you know, just knowing the culture of the game, not just during games, but looking at film is such an important part of what players do, pitchers and batters alike, that I think that they should have kind of the liberty to 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 do that for themselves as they please. And I don't think that, you know, what Houston uh, ended up doing should get in the way of that. But I think that once you kind of have all the gadgetry that Houston had set up, kind of like the the, the, the technological aspects, I need to do a little more reading on, you know, what exactly, you know, went down. There's been so much going on uh, both in and out of baseball this past year that, you know, I kind of am not, I'm, I'm not as well versed on the, on the particulars outside of, you know, the banging trash can. But uh, I don't think that there needs to be like a drastic uh, reshaping of the rules or, you know, some sort of, you know, tightening of what's allowed and what's not. I think that you had bad actors and you punish the bad actors and you, 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 you go on your merry way. Now there will be more replay officials and video officials in those rooms. There were this season, but that's more than likely going to continue. There's no way this gets forgotten about even 10 years from now, they're always going to have that tainted legacy even as it becomes more and more commonplace that they more common knowledge that they, wow, they cheated and they mostly stuck around the game. Now, speaking of the Red Sox have a very intriguing managerial opening and Alex Cora was at the heart of that scandal. 
managed the team in 2018 after jumping from the Astros, was suspended for one year, and Ron Renicki took his place. The Red Sox, as you know, as a diehard fan, had a horrendous 2020, and Renicki was let go. And now I'd like you to help us fill in who's being looked at for the upcoming season for the new skipper of the Sox. Sure. You know, one, one thing that kind of has to be uh, addressed out in the open is uh, the, are, are the rumblings that Cora is once again the favorite. Uh, I have some really conflicted thoughts on this. You know, I, I enjoyed Cora as a player. I was very excited to see him come back as a manager. And as a manager, uh, he impressed the heck out of me. Um, his ability to kind of meld uh, some analytics expertise, uh, being able to connect with the players, he was exactly what that team needed. And being able to bring them to a world championship, but also doing it while uh, beating the Dodgers in five games. I, I think that given uh, g- given the team the Dodgers have been for the past half of the decade, that was a, an incredible accomplishment. But on the other hand, this is a really this is a really tough thing to kind of walk away from and get that sour taste out of one's mouth. And so if they bring him back, then, you know, in, in, in Chaim Bloom, I trust. But for now, uh, I'm choosing to kind of look at some of the other candidates they're interviewing. And there are a lot of really interesting names here. I would say that uh, my early favorite, and this is not based of any media scuttle about this, just my own idiosyncrasies. Uh, Will Venable, uh, I believe he's coaching, he coached third for the Cubs this past year, I want to say. Spent a couple years coaching first for them. Uh, multi-generation MLB player, multi-generation uh, professional baseball coach. His father was the hitting coach uh, in the Korean baseball organization for quite some time. Uh, Venable is a Princeton alumnus. Uh, he played basketball and baseball for Princeton simultaneously. So very high-powered guy, very hard worker, and uh, was, was an incredibly talented athlete. Uh, spent uh, quite some time uh, in the majors as a regular in the San Diego Padres outfield. Um, I think that he could be um, a guy in a, in a similar vein as Cora, kind of bringing, bringing, bringing those same strengths to the table. A couple other names that, that have kind of caught my eye. Skip Schumacher, uh, the associate manager for the San Diego Padres, longtime Cardinals second baseman. He's been getting getting uh, quite a bit of uh, positive press in the rumor mill as someone that uh, will be a very good manager one day soon. James Rosen uh, was the hitting coach for the Twins when they uh, they got that whole Bomba squad thing going. Moved over to be Don Mattingly's bench coach in Miami this year and uh, was the number two guy on the first Marlins playoff squad in 17 years. Uh, the guy seems like he has success in his blood. Uh, it would be very interesting to see him up in Boston. And some other names, Don Kelly is getting quite a, quite a few looks. Uh, Louis Urueta. This is the second time in two years that he's gotten a, an interview for this job. Currently the Diamondbacks bench coach under former Sox interim skipper Tori Lavallo. Other bench coaches, they're really doing their due diligence. Mike Bell with the Twins, uh, Carlos Mendoza with the Yankees, no relation to Maddie. Um, hey Matt, so how you this, doing? <laughs> so this is going to be a very... Uh, a, v- a very thorough search that they're doing. Yeah, even, even if it does end up just being core, they've really left no stone unturned. Um, also, just uh, to, to quickly circle back, and then we, you, can, you can respond to my thoughts on the Red Sox. There, uh, there, 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 there's one other interesting name I wanted to talk to you about with the, with the Tiger Searcher too, maybe. Uh, Marcus Thames, he fits into that uh, archetype of you know, the recently retired player with coaching experience. He's been the Tigers, uh, on the Tigers staff for a while. Um, you're obviously familiar with him as, as a former Yankee and uh, Phil Nevin, um, who has been a mainstay on the Yankees staff, but um, uh, a very good major league player in his day. And he came up with the Tigers. So a couple interesting names there. Marcus Timms has actually been the hitting coach for the Yankees for the last couple of years. And he has gotten this praise for getting the most out of players, especially when it came to power. And there's a reason they're the Bronx Bombers after all. Aaron Judge has credited him with helping him fix his swing after a very rough early 2016 tenure in his first break into the big leagues. He has been around since the Joe Girardi days and he originally shared hitting coach duties. He ended up taking over the role in full. He gets a lot of flack just for the amount of strikeouts the team hits and the lack of situational awareness that they can occasionally uh, find themselves in. But overall, I think he's been a a very good coach and he's gotten the most out of the home run department there. And as for Phil Nevin, he was brought over by Aaron Boone in 2018. He is the spark plug for this coaching staff. Nevin has threatened to fight members of the Astros. He has threatened to fight members of the... They got in a fight this year and it just members of the Tampa Bay Rays. There it is. And he is just in it. You could not doubt his dedication. The former number one overall pick in baseball. He was around for a very long time playing and he's been a great coach. I would like him very much to get an opportunity, but I don't want him to leave the team either. So they're going to be around. I think even getting an interview at this point is an indictment that you're going to be lined up for jobs in the future, correct? 
I think I, th- I think it is now, uh, Matt. I just uh, gave some uh, a, bit, a bit of a nice dissertation about the Red Sox, and I don't get a chance to make you talk about Boston very much. So, uh, what, what what were your thoughts on on some of those names I threw out there? I think it's interesting that they're going for once again a guy with not much experience at the professional level managing, but people who have been around the game recently retired and Skip Schumacher and Don Kelly. These are guys that were just playing a few years ago. I think it would be very interesting to give them a chance. You could take a look at a Rocco Baldelli in Minnesota. You could take a look at a David Ross in Chicago. These guys are getting rave reviews to say nothing of Boone, Ash, even Cora, who aside from his misgivings in the ethical department is known to be a very good manager. Ultimately, I think they're going to go back with him. It seems like it's been written in the stars for a while now that even though this was a suspension, he hasn't really earned any bridges. And I think he will be coming back. I, this, is an, this is a trend that is going to continue and has moved on from former catcher who looks good. That was the Brian Kenny description of what most managers are. Catchers who are good looking and tall. We have moved past (laughs) that. We are moving into guys who are just known for being around the clubhouse and for being stabilizing presences when teams are struggling and helping lead them when they win. Now, what this means for their, for the role of the manager itself is a bit different because guys have been given the reputation of being stooges for analytic departments is managing more of a player driven approach now where you're just trying to manage personalities and has the tactical side just been taken away from them. Some would say in certain organizations, definitely, but Boston, I feel like he'll be able to get the liberty of just making his own decisions. In some organizations, it doesn't seem like that's always the case. Well, I think that one thing uh, to reiterate is that Cora had a very solid relationship with the front office. And I think that part of what makes these hires so interesting is that uh, you're having guys who are definitely given a lot of leeway in terms of like the personnel decisions and, you know, how they're able to, you know, handle the clubhouse and whatnot. But I think that you're, you're not going to be seeing guys who are really at odds with the front office's philosophy uh, with respect to analytics. And so I think that if you have a guy like Dave Roberts, who, you know, ends up putting on some, you know, ridiculous shifts all throughout the playoffs. Like, yeah, Andrew Friedman was probably passing it on down to him, but that's probably also something that Dave Roberts is looking at because he's a, he's a smart, well-read guy and saying, Hey, this makes a lot of sense for us and puts us in a great position to win. And so I don't think it necessarily has to be in either or. And for those decisions that are analytically based, Kevin Cash, we will get to you in a little bit, sir. Now, just going over some award finalists. First off, congratulations to Devin Williams of the National League, William Hendricks of the American League, relievers of the year. Very good job by both of you. We will get to some good eye. Get some shrimp on the bobby. I just had some outback last night and I'm in the mood to celebrate. Stereotypes are bad, kids. Uh, look at people as more as more than that. Of course. <laughs> Gold Glove nominees that were worth mentioning in the American League, Griffin Cannon, Kent Maeda, Zach Plesak, the NL Max Freed. I made some great plays in the playoffs. Kyle Hendricks, Alec Mills, of all people. Good for him. Guys, I wanted to really just note Grandal McCann, Perez in the American League for catchers, NL Barnhart, Contreras, Jacob Stallings. Good for the Pirates. But Fun one tidbit, I- real quick. Yes. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Jacob Stallings. There was a brief period uh, where he was catching for the Pirates and his father was the basketball coach for the University of Pittsburgh. Dad got laughed out after two years and, and son is still in the lineup, so... Who would have thought that? Because Stallings was never known for his bat. I guess his glove has made him the career that he's given, that he's been given, considering he's getting nominated for the award. For the award, a lot of the usual faces here. Olsen for the American League on first base. Paul Goldschmidt, Anthony Rizzo, both very good fielders. At third base, no Matt Chapman. He was not around enough to qualify before he had to deal with his hip surgery. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, the former backstop for the Texas Rangers, plugging in and performing a remarkable third base in Todd Frazier's wake. He was around at third. Frazier also played some first. How about that? How often do you see the Josh Donaldson-like transition from catcher to a corner infield spot? And how often does it work well? I mean, I would say that uh, not corner infield necessarily, but this gave me some shades of Craig Biggio, you know, coming up as a catcher and then making his mark, you know, in in, in the infield. Uh, but I think that uh, with Connor Falifa, what a remarkable transformation he's made. Uh, you you texted me uh, in the extended offseason saying you heard something about some some kinks he ironed out in his swing. It was worth I, a fantasy pickup, and I picked Austin Nola instead. I couldn't go wrong either. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fair as well. But I would argue that out of nowhere, um, Kiner Falefa was the best position player on this Rangers team this year. Granted, pretty low bar, uh, worst record in the American League. But still, that's some really nice value they've extracted from him. 
and when you have a guy like Josh Young as your top prospect, who uh, will probably be debuting, I would imagine, either next year or the year after, that's a, that, that's a very intriguing uh, combination you have there at, you know, at, at third and second base. In the National League, Nolan Arenado, yawn, that's fine. He's always there. Urshela, Javi Baez at short. Clint Frazier is in the outfield. What a remarkable turnaround. Even though it was a tiny amount of innings, him and Joey Gallo, for the chance for a Gold Glove Award in right field five years ago, you wouldn't be saying that. Totally surprising. Newcomers, Shogo Akiyama in left field for the NL. Trent Grisham in center field. Acuna Bellinger also rounding it out. I got to say, we love that for Trent Grisham, not to keep harping on this. He deserves to move on. But given uh, given that uh, that misplay in the wild card game last year and to have him then turn that around, not let him affect, not let it affect him and to be in position to potentially get a gold glove. You know, that takes resilience. Now, that being said, the National League's outs above average leader, Victor Robles, was not a finalist. So Grisham's seat might be a bit warm compared to Acuna and Belly. But nevertheless, he is there. Now, 265 innings was the minimum this year. How much stock are you putting into this? I don't put too much stock into gold gloves anyway. They're mostly a crapshoot. And if you're entrenched in the position, you're more than likely just going to keep getting it year after year. What do you think? Are you paying much attention or is it just a nice story? I mean, I think that uh, insofar as I pay attention to gold gloves, uh, I like to see it kind of track the advanced metrics more. Uh, I know that in the past that there are issues with people who were looked at very highly by saber metrics, but it, it would end up just being a popularity contest. Cough, cough, Derek Jeter, cough, cough. Um, hey. uh, I, I, I imagine that uh, with the baseball press becoming ever so slowly more analytically minded that you're seeing... Uh, a more accurate reflection of, of people's true abilities. And I think that with respect to this year, I'm paying attention to all the awards because these players are still getting it relative to everyone else. You know, sure. They only played like a small, a small handful of innings compared to last year's winners, but you know, we're not measuring them against previous, previous craps of players. They're measure, we're measuring them against their peers who were facing the same set of constraints that they were. And you know, these guys were still the best. And now these awards may be worth paying attention to the player's choice awards because they can be precursors to what's going to be given down the line in terms of hardware. Freddie Freeman named the NL's outstanding player. Jose Abreu took it for the American League. The AL outstanding pitcher was Shane Bieber and the NL Trevor Bauer, rookie of the year in both of their voting, Kyle Lewis and Jake Cronenworth of all people. AL comeback player of the year, Carlos Carrasco coming back from his illness of last year. Even more angry that Zach Plesak was just around to possibly get him sick. But whatever. Yeah, fuck Zach, please, Zach. NL comeback player Daniel Bard, after battling the Yips, was a decent member of that Rockies bullpen, and they didn't have many decent members. He was closing by the end of the year, I think. Is that good that's for pretty, them or sad remarkable. for Wade Davis? Um, sad for Wade Davis, but you know, as, as as someone who really enjoyed watching Bard when he came up for the first time with the Sox, uh, you know, very highly touted prospects um, didn't didn't quite pan out because because of these yips. But to see him come back is you know really really remarkable and quite interesting to see him uh, in the game at the same time as his younger brother Luke as well. So you know, a lot of a lot of pride in that family, I would imagine. Definitely. And I'm sure they didn't expect the long and winding road to get back, but here he is, and he's got to be commended for that. Now, arguably the two most important awards to the players, the Marvin Miller Man of the Year, just given to all around one of the best guys who helps the union, Nelson Cruz, hashtag O'Nelly, and the Kurt Flood Award winner, a former player, living or deceased, who in the image of Flood demonstrated a selfless, longtime devotion to the Players Association and advancement of players' rights. How about Hall of Famer Andre Dawson? Congratulations to him for coming back from his Ivy that he was in during that State Farm commercial about 10 years ago. He has emerged. Did did you say this is a new award? It's a very important award. Not exactly new, but it's it's their most important award just in terms of helping helping their cause. Sure. That is it for now with the awards. We're going to be have to pay attention to the Cy Young, the MVP, the Rookie of the Year, the Manager of the Year. Remember those names, though, because there could be some sway and players could be in tune with the writers. We will see. Brief tidbits around the league before we get to the WS recap. Looks like pitchers will hit in 2021. Though both leagues might have the DH again in 2022. I did not really care that there were no pitchers hitting in the National League. Did not really think twice about it. It's a move that is going to be used as a bargaining chip for both parties because it, it creates 15 more jobs for players who may not be getting as much work because they're not great in the field, but they have a good bat. And I think it's fine. I do enjoy a good old pitcher home run. 
And I will miss the double switch that happened very frequently in the National League. But pitchers hit a collective of what, like 130 every year. I think we could skip it. Yeah. And I think that every generation has like maybe one to two pitchers who can like actually hit their weight. I remember when we were kids, like Mike Hampton was by far and away the only one who could really do anything. Uh, one thing that has been interesting the past couple of years is when you have a guy like Mike Lorenzen who came up as a two-way player, he was, you know, a center fielder, at Cal State Fullerton, as well as, as the ace of their staff. He's, he's pinch hit for himself or not to not, not for himself, but like he's pinch hit and then come in as a pitcher several times, which is a really interesting thing for the Reds to have in their, uh, in their toolbox. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I recall, I think I recall him playing uh, an inning or two in the outfield in a late extra inning game. Played some center. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you do have these, uh, outliers like that, but I, I think that's just what they are outliers and that any value that comes from having a pitcher with that kind of extreme versatility is negated by the ability to like put a full time batter in that spot in the lineup. And one thing that also, uh, one thing that I, we also saw this year was that just because both, uh, both leagues had the DH to start, you'd still have DHs being moved into the field and therefore having the pitchers inserted into the lineup. So managers were still able to you know, be creative and, and we're, we're, we're working that, uh, kind of, you know, double, not, not a, traditional double switch with double switch esque elements to their strategy. Now we may be showing our American league bias, but I really did not miss it. We're going to, we're going to regret not seeing a Bartolo Colon home run of that magnitude in the future, but it's totally fine. Maybe we'll get one in 2021. Rob Manfred, he liked the expanded playoff format. He was listening to us clearly and is a fan of the extra inning rule, which starts with a runner on second. That did not happen in the postseason. Didn't have to get to that point. I was fine with the playoffs. I do not want to run around second starting, even though some players seem to like it. Others were vehemently against it. I like a more traditional version of the game back in that regard. I don't think that'll last, but maybe in the minor leagues, I don't see the issue with that. I mean, the, the minor leagues had it last year. Of course. Um, they're, they're, they don't seem like they're complaining too much. But then again, who knows if there's going to be a minor league season at any point in time going forward. And now we're sad. We're going to be on the diamond instead of on the farm next. Yeah. Sorry for bringing the doomer hours back, but (laughs) it's going to be a rough winter in terms of that. But let's get to the World Series. We got a baseball season. We have to be happy about that. Regardless of how rocky the road was, we got here with most of our limbs intact. So let's get to these power number one seeds, the battle of analytics, the battle of player versatility the battle of two managers who occasionally are wayward in their thinking and overmanage a bit too much. And that came into display game one. The Dodgers were the designated home team. They had the best record at 43 and 17, and they took advantage of that. Clayton Kershaw starting off against Tyler glass. Now he temporarily silenced his critics in this one went six strong, only gave up one, had one walk, struck out eight. This was a new Kershaw this entire playoffs, aside from the one clunker against Atlanta. That wasn't really his fault. He just couldn't make it out of the sixth inning. Totally fine. And the Dodgers took advantage of Tyler Glasnow's wildness, threw very hard, was touching 97 the entire series, but still had six walks. Got eight strikeouts out of that, but six walks. And Cash, in my opinion, left him in way too long. There was a Cody Bellinger home run to open the scoring. Kevin Kiermeyer cut the lead in half from two to nothing to two to one. Kevin Kiermeyer, a powerful force in this playoffs, which was surprising to me. Then just an absolute onslaught. And the Dodgers never really looked back. Mookie Betts is very good. And as I was texting you, this is something I brought up and it's got some sort of resistance from people I was speaking to. If you were to poll a hundred people about two years ago, we'll say three years ago because Betts was the MVP. A hundred of them would probably say Mike Trout is the best player three years from now. And especially given recency bias, if you pull that same hundred people, maybe 90 or 95 would say Trout. The other five or 10 might say Mookie Betts. What say you? You know, I think that's, uh, that question is answered by factors that neither Mookie nor Mike Trout have control over. I think that Mookie has a lot more exposure because he plays on a team that's well-built and, you know, wins their division and is able to go deep in the playoffs. Whereas Mike Trout um, may very well be the most skilled player of our generation and one of the greats of all time, but he's just languaging on that Angels team, which never seems to be able to get anything done. And so uh, it's at, at this point, it's questionable whether or not the poor guy's ever going to be in a playoff series. Uh, and so I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the overarching factor that, you know, is, is, is going to determine how people, how people answer that question. I will also say that, and this is a tough thing to, you know, hold people 
accountable for because it's, it's tough to control, but Mookie seems like he has a little bit more of a natural charisma. He, you know, markets himself, you know, with a little more panache. Uh, and so I think that he's going to be probably a more, much more visible player going forward. This is all independent of what goes on on the field. I'm still going to say trout for my answer a hundred times out of a hundred, but Betts is transcendent. And I feel like you have to just sit back and gaze at what he's able to do on the field night in and night out. And you got that experience for six years. Yeah. Such, such a shame that, that, uh, that other team had to let him go. I really can't believe that salary concerns were a problem for that team, but we continue. Yeah. I fucking can't either, man. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan Yarbrough in this one only went uh, two thirds of an inning. He was a high leverage pitcher who went in the low leverage spot, which was interesting. We'll punt this one for Tampa because game two, they came back with thunder an early Brandon Lau home run. Very good for him because he looked lost through the first three rounds of the playoffs. And he was arguably their best hitter the entire regular season. And he just couldn't get anything going. Finally came back. He had a second home run in that game. The Rays were up 5-0. This got a bit closer with Will Smith and Corey Seager hitting home runs. But this was mostly all Rays. Blake Snell had a no-hitter through four. Did not last very long. In this one, got taken out rather early. Um, Maybe there's some foreshadowing in there. Maybe there isn't. Tony Gonsolin, not the ideal opener. Dustin May gets hit very hard. He got hit very hard in this one. Aaron Loop came in the ninth inning of a World Series game in the year of our Lord 2020, which is very interesting. Diego Castillo came in for the saves. Was this a repeat of NLCS game two, where the Dodgers woke up very late and unleashed in game three? Well, not exactly. Justin Turner had a first inning home run. They were up 5 nothing. It wasn't the onslaught of 15 runs and 11 of them coming in the first inning against the Atlanta Braves. But Walker Bueller was masterful. He went six. Charlie Morton struggled in his last bit of work as a member of the Tampa Bay Rays because they just declined his option. He is either coming back to the East Coast or he's going to be retiring. It will be fun to see where he goes. Now, game four. Is this or is this not the game of the year? This is the game of the year. This is maybe the game of the past two or three years. You know, I, I'm, I'm someone who consumes a lot of baseball content. Uh, I don't get to watch a, a ton of live baseball just based off of, you know, what's, what's going on in, in my life. But I still cannot remember being anywhere near as transfixed to a game. And this is a game that had, you know, that, that did not have any team I had any rooting interest. Uh, and on either side. I will openly admit that I am addicted to my phone. My phone was away for the entirety of this, if not to check Twitter for a bit, just to see what people were tweeting about in regards to the game. But I was totally focused on this one. Back and forth, featuring a lot of the main characters. Turner, Seeger, Randy Arozarena again. Brandon Lau had a three-run blast, his third of the postseason. Gave the Rays a 5-4 to four lead. Top of the seventh, a Jock Peterson two-run single put the Dodgers up one. Kevin Kiermeyer tied the game right back up in the bottom. Kenley Jansen was on in the ninth to keep the game tied. And boy, oh boy, Brett Phillips, the man with the laugh that can cure diseases, jumping from Milwaukee to Kansas City, a waiver claim of Tampa Bay late in August, getting his chance to pinch hit because the entire bench had been used. G-Man Choi was gone. Hunter Renfro was gone. They went to Phillips and Kenley Jansen put it up high. The ball went right down the middle. A single. For Brett Phillips, a Chris Taylor error. that, And even though he got the ball in, Mookie Betts did at least. It hit Will Smith right in the glove. He missed it. Randy Arozarena was caught leaning in between third and home. A mad dash that goes, without saying, incredible base running by accident. And this was the way this ended. Randy Arozarena and the Rays tied this one at two. It was an oh my God moment. And you don't get too many of those. You're lucky if you catch them. Oh my God. Yeah, a walk-off win in a World Series is just, you know, so incredibly rare. You know, you're not even, you're not even guaranteed to, to to get one every couple of years. And, you know, just as as you mentioned, just a confluence of different things that combined to make that play what it was. You know, this that really just goes to show how unpredictable this game is and, you know, whether it's, you know, a laugher of an early season game or a pivotal, you know, game 4 in World Series, you never know what you're going to get. And I just think that the image of a Rosarena belly flopping onto home plate, um that's going to go down and and raise lore for As it should. This one, they were right back in this one. Game five, you'd think the Rays had a bit more momentum going into it, but Clayton Kershaw was on the mound again, once again, facing Tyler Glasnow. And Kershaw delivered five and two thirds, struck out six. Glasnow was rough. Dustin May figured it out. Victor Gonzalez and Blake Trinan sealed the deal. This one was over quickly. The Rays couldn't really get it, despite what that score suggested. Couldn't really get in the game. Good for Clayton Kershaw. Is that narrative that we talked about dead? 
now that he had a solid postseason, I want to say he had six starts and five of them were good. And especially when they mattered most, there was no choking to be had here. I mean, he had a solid postseason. He had that, that very nice game that you just mentioned and his team won the trophy. So I think, I think he's good. I think that this is, this is the David Price situation all over again, in my opinion. I'm, I'm sure he's very glad to hear it too. People will get off his back. Very Peyton Manning, uh, 1998 to 2006, Peyton Manning, where he couldn't get the big one until he finally broke away and beat the Bears, slaughtered the Bears. And now the last one, game six, Randy Rosarena's final portrait, a solo shot off of Tony Gonson in the first. Is this guy a superstar or is he reaching a peak? I know you texted me. He was very highly regarded coming into his career. So I got to hope that the future is bright and this is not just a flash in the pan for him. Yeah, I think that's um, just the sheer magnitude of his numbers of uh, just like with, with, with the home run count. I think the one stat that jumps out at me is uh, he hit more home runs in the postseason than anyone on his former team, the St. Louis Cardinals, hit in the entire regular season. And I, I, I think that uh, it must be noted, I don't have the stats uh, in front of me right now, but he was no slouch uh, in his debut in that limited uh, amount of time he got as a Cardinal last uh, last summer. I think this is a guy that the Rays should start to consider building their building their lineup around. I think that the sky's the limit for him. You need to start marketing him. This Really, the sky's the limit for his potential to billboards in the Tampa Bay area. I won't say national because that's very hard to do. But going into the sixth inning, Blake Snell was rolling at five and a third, two hits, no runs, nine strikeouts. Facing the nine hitter, Austin Barnes, he gives up a single and Kevin Cash does his thing and takes out the pitcher early. This is a thing the Rays are known for. They're very formulaic in the way they deal with their pitchers. They don't want to go three times through the order with anybody, regardless of if the guy just won the Cy Young Award two years ago. And they take him out. They bring in Nick Anderson, who has struggled the entire postseason. 10 earned runs in 14 innings pitched. Was not a guy you really wanted to have in a situation facing the top three guys in the lineup. Who, may I remind you, Snell held them to 0 for 6 with 6 strikeouts. This was Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, and Justin Turner. Now, of course, Turner will be taken out after this at-bat. So 0 for 6 with 6 strikeouts against Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, and Justin Turner who are superstars when they're playing, but they were not seeing Snell well at all. He was throwing in the upper 90s with some fantastic breaking stuff. He was in on this game. He left dejectedly. Anderson came in and promptly gave up some hits, probably gave up a wild pitch. Mookie scored on a ground ball to first after hitting a double down the left field line. And the Seager ground ball was a fielder's choice. Got him in. Very Game 5-esque with a Lucas Duda-style bad throw to secure the Royals the victory. There was never any doubt in this one that once the Dodgers took the lead, that they were going to squander it. The icing on the cake for the Mookie Betts acquisition was a home run in the eighth inning. This was in the bag. Julio Arias came out and pitched miraculously in relief. What a, job, what a job he did. The Los Angeles Dodgers World Series champions for the first time since 1988. Remarkable given how much money they have spent. Remarkable given how much time they've been in the playoffs. Eight straight division titles in that National League West. And they are finally here. Good for Los Angeles. We have to talk about what Kevin Cash did. Now, they're a team as analytically minded as anybody. I'm a person I'd like to say I'm analytically minded. I don't understand that. Fangraphs didn't really understand that. I know three times through the order, people get penalized. But you may have to ignore that and just hope that he could face Mookie Betts and get through that top three and then take him out of your six. That's fine. He was only at 80 some odd pitches. I think it was way too premature. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on the same page as you are, Matt. I try to give the numbers their due, but I think that the, 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 the adage about the third time through the order, um, I think that that gets lessened when you have a guy of Blake Snell's capability on the mound. You know, I'd be much more worried if it were some, you know, middle of the rotation schlub having to face that part of the lineup again. It's not Ryan Yarborough. That's the guy you do it with. And I wouldn't even call him a schlub, but no, not at all. He's but point, point taken. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that's, um, you know, a lot of that stuff kind of should be going out the window when, when it's your ace, when it's a former Cy Young winner was having, you know, one hell of a bounce back season after, after a somewhat rough 2019. Um, I think that this was, it was a fuck up on Cash's part. I am not prepared to say that he should face any sort of consequences for this. You know, this was really like the one, the, 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 the one iffy decision I can point to having made, you know, he managed the Tampa Bay Rays into a world series. He, he, he got them the best record in the American league, uh, having to deal with, uh, teams like the Yankees in their division, uh, you know, Oakland and Minnesota and Cleveland were very talented squads this year. 
And so I think that with him, the good drastically outweighs the bad, but you know, he's, he's going to lose some sleep over this. As he rightfully should. I don't think he'll get fired over it. You're right. That's a move that he's going to have to ponder for the next couple months. Now for Blake Snell, you got to wonder, he's on a, ra- a rather cheap contract that's very team-friendly. They're a team that's known to trade players away. I'm sure they're not going to like it, but this may make leaving a bit easier for him once free agency comes around. And that's much. That's very speculative, but he was not happy the last two times that he had to get taken out of the lineup early. Uh, in the ALCS against the Astros, you could hear him mouthing, what the fuck were we doing after he was taken out prematurely again? That one didn't matter. The bullpen didn't blow it, but he was upset. He's incensed by the slapdick prospects that the team keeps acquiring. This was a move that's going to bother him, and it's worth monitoring. For a team that's known to cycle players in and out, who knows how much longer he's going to be there. He's going to be around. He's going to be the ace of a rotation wherever he goes. Watch for it a few years down the line. Yeah, I think uh, it would not be a surprise to see him in New York, LA, or Chicago at some point uh, a few years down the road. I'll I think totally that, take him. But that means that Steve Cohen, the new ma- the new owner of the Mets, is going to take him first. Oh, can you imagine Blake Snell and Jake DeGrom at the top of a rotation? Uh, no. <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd much rather not. That's, that would be just terrifying, and they'd have the Battle of New York just completed. Yeah, I mean, not to, not, not to get sidetracked for a little bit. I know this wasn't on our agenda, but uh, you know, there's a lot of really interesting uh, things bubbling around there. Obviously, uh, the idea with, with Steve Cohen coming in is that the Mets would finally have uh, an owner who wants to spend, you know, pay top dollar to top free agents. Uh, people in that fan base were really looking forward to the, the, the chance to finally compete and utilize the power of their New York media market. We got a couple bumps in the road, don't we, Matt? That we do. Bill de Blasio trying to squash the sale, citing the insider trading charges that Cohen faced years ago. Doesn't matter. De Blasio has done a great job in uniting the entire city against him in many, <laughs> in many controversial aspects. This is just another one of them where people are saying, this is not your lane, my friend. Let this happen, especially long-suffering Mets fans who want just a, an owner who will spend money on them. Ultimately, I don't think it's going to matter. The only the single owner who voted against Cohen was Jerry Reinsdorf. 29 to 1 is enough. I think this is still going to go through. Just making enemies out of everybody is the mayor of New York, isn't he? Right. And I, th- I, th- I think that even if the sale is able to go through, uh, what de Blasio is doing is he's, he's delaying the process, he's dragging it out, and that's going to leave the Mets at a competitive disadvantage. You know, in terms of what they'll be able to do in free agency this year, and, and who knows how long it would, it would drag on if he, you know, I mean, if, if, if you're asking my two cents, de Blasio has far more that he should be worried about in terms of, you know, a friggin' pandemic hitting his city, you know, dealing with uh, all the, the consequences that's being that are being faced in the Department of Education. But, you know, if if he chooses to really make this a big fight, you know, for whatever godforsaken reason, uh, this could this could screw the Mets over for several years to come. He was a big fan of the Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez ownership group. Uh, So take with that what you will. I feel like that would have been much worse. And just from a pure baseball standpoint, I think it'd be hilarious if Cohen just had all that money and didn't spend it. But that's obviously not going to happen. He is going to be here. He's going to be better than the Wilpons. The Mets fans will be happy with this upcoming winter, if they can get everything squared away. Now, this upcoming winter is quite interesting because as you know, revenue is down across the league. We are planning on having a guest coming on in the next few weeks to talk about this in depth, but money is down across the league. Free agency is going to be a bit different. There are not going to be as many contracts doled out in the six-figure variety. A couple guys that were declined for their contract options this year, Brett Gardner, Ryan Braun, Charlie Morton, Mike Zunino. Now, those four, I guess I can understand. Gardner's getting up there in age. Ryan Braun has had a bad back since 2014. Charlie Morton may retire. Mike Zunino hasn't really hit. The one surprising one, Brad Hand, only going to be making $10 million with Cleveland next year, but he was released on outright waivers with hopes that he would become a free agent. What's it going to look like for the middle class of free agents this year? I don't see a pretty picture where guys that are entering their age 31 or 32 seasons are getting as well compensated as they would in years past. And this is not because of their inefficiency on the field or their possible declining war totals. This may just be a money issue. Yeah, I think uh, our friend was a bit of a precursor for this last year. I think you're going to get a lot of guys in that age bracket, you know, of, of that general caliber who are just not going to be getting anywhere near the amount of money they think they're entitled to or even the amount of money they would be getting in non-pandemic, non-recession circumstances. And unfortunately, this is probably going to lead to a lot of major league caliber guys just sitting uh, a good chunk, if not all, of next season out. 
And, you know, looking that far in the future, it's anyone's guess when teams are going to see their revenue totals start to start to climb back up and be able to afford to, to, to pay these guys what they're used to. And so that could very drastically shape how things play out next season. It could be kind of like what we saw this year. Uh, a question of who has you know the most major league ready guys at their at their alternate training site, and you know the, the player development uh, and and uh, and minor leagues angle could could be a huge huge factor in in team performance more so than usual. Now I would surmise that this only helps the large market teams. Not that Cleveland's going to be spending a lot in free agency anyway, but the disparity between top and bottom can only gain here because maybe these guys get declined, and you pull up Blake. Trinan and get a team friendlier contract with a team like the Dodgers in Hans case and just reinvent yourself and just make sure the haves and the have nots are even larger because of a team like we'll say Pittsburgh because they're usually going to get one free agent or two no matter how good or bad they are even a Cleveland even a Colorado who spent over a hundred million dollars in the outfield a few years ago they're not going to be big players this year because they don't have the funds to do so or so the, the owners don't want to spend really Yankees Red Sox Dodgers Angels they're all going to be big players on these guys simply because they could to say nothing of the new ownership group that seems to have an, an abundance of cash in the New York Mets. Yeah. I think uh, with uh, Brad hand in particular, when uh, the news broke on MLB trade rumors, it was pointed out that you know, he's, he's on waivers right now. And you have uh, you have the Red Sox and the Mets and the angels all, you know, top 10 in the waiver wire order. And so, you know, you're probably going to see guys in that situation get picked up. These big market teams would love to have a guy like Brad Hand uh, uh, join join their team. You know, as someone who had to watch his his guy Matt Barnes, unfortunately, not have that hot of a year in the in the closers role for the Red Sox. You know, being able to to, to pick up Brad Hand on on a contract that's that favorable uh, would be would be miraculous. And I'm sure that you know, I'm sure that Mets fans who had you know a pretty uh, shaky bullpen uh, in terms of guys not named Edwin Diaz. They'd feel the same way. The Angels, they uh, had uh, Hansel Robles lose the closers role. Ty Buttre had uh, uh, a pretty iffy year. Bedrosian, you never know if he's going to stay healthy. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of demand on these big market teams for a guy like Brad Hand. The quickest way to end a rebuild is to have the other 25 teams in the league just not really trying to spend much money. That being said, the Yankees picked up Zach Britton's option. He will be back. The first free agency signing, Kendall Graveman going back to the Seattle Mariners, but that's a cheap deal. One would expect a lot more of those in the coming months. They're not going to be, not that the class is as exciting as it would have been with Mookie Betts in it. Trevor Bauer is going to command a lot of money. He's the sweepstakes right now, and we have to look forward to that. Sam, this was a great show. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for being with us. For Sam Shapiro, I'm Matt Kovitz. Have a great week, everybody.